0: through um, 34, where Paul is in Athens. And basically, the, the uh, this can be summed up as, uh, as Paul explained now, a Christian culture, or a, the Christian church, or a Christian individual should be interacting or responding to the pagan culture that we live in. We've, we've gotten through verse 20, uh, and we're going to pick it up in verse 21. But, uh, Paul's in Athens, his spirit is provoked as he looks at all the idolatry, he's, he's just enraged in his spirit over the lies and the deceptions that are controlling people in that pagan culture. It doesn't turn him to anger uh, in the sense of harsh words with people. Rather, it, it motivates him and pro- uh, provokes him to go and begin to speak with people about Jesus and the resurrection. And he went to, first, as was his pattern, he went to the Jewish synagogue and shared with them out of the scriptures, Old Testament scriptures, how Jesus was the fulfillment of all the promises given to Abraham, uh, Abraham and to the children of Israel. And then he went to the marketplace where business was done and politics was done and philosophical schools were done and just... Just kind of conversations that you get in a coffee house or in a restaurant or even at a Anchorage assembly meeting or something like that. Just a lot of conversations, different types, and he began to interact with those people too. The common people who probably didn't, you know, if they're if they're like most professing. Christians. They you know they say they're Christians, but they don't really pay a whole lot of attention to Christianity or about the scripture and to honoring God, sadly. Um, with pagans, it's kind of the same way. They say they believe in all these gods, the, the, all of them that were there, but did they really? We don't know. Probably not. But he started engaging those kind of people. And while he's engaging in the marketplace, then he gets the opportunity to speak with some of the philosophical schools, the Epicureans and the Stoics, and they begin to interact with him, and some of them are mocking him, saying, you're nothing but a religious seed picker. You're gathering up pieces of religious information, and you're, you're just, you know, casting it to the winds, kind of spreading it, but you don't really know what you're talking about. And others are saying, like, this is weird. It sounds like this guy's talking about Foreign deities that we've not heard of before. We've got a lot of deities that we recognize, but, we, you know, so they had some spiritual curiosity about that. We want to hear more of what you're, you're saying about this Jesus and, and Anastasis. Uh, so, Anastasis is the Greek word for resurrection. They pr- probably thought he was talking about two different gods Jesus and resurrection. And, and, and so he has engaged with them. As we talked through all of that last week, I made a particular appeal for us, or maybe it was the week before, appeal for us to be looking for the opportunities. It was last week because God gave Paul this opportunity to speak and go to the Areopagus. And I said, let's be looking for the opportunities that God gives us to share the Lord in the context of people's lives, where they're coming from, not, not from, you know, Necessarily directly quoting the scripture to them because they might not have any idea what you 're talking about bible i 've never read the Bible job uh, Romans or those cities uh, you know they but talking to them biblical truth right i I got to share this email with you that I got last night, and i i 've gotten uh, permission to do this. Hello, dear pastors i 've been meaning to write to you all week since. Spencer had asked the body to share with us as pastors how we're finding opportunities to share Christ with others. Last week, one of my friends was telling me about her friend's daughter, whose name was one I hadn't heard before, Uh, so this is in a particular ethnic background, one I had not heard of of before in in the the community. Uh, I think in retrospect, I asked her, uh, if she knew what the other girl's name meant. And she puzzled over how to respond. She knew what it meant, but didn't know how to express it in English. Finally, she said, It means, um, it's like when you take someone else's burden on yourself and you don't have to do it, but you do it anyway. And I was amazed, for one thing, that a single name could convey so much meaning. But then my eyes filled with tears as I told her, Oh, I think I understand. That's what Jesus did for us. The Bible says that Jesus took our sins on himself as if he were the guilty one, so that he was punished and we could be forgiven. The smile on her face was so precious. I honestly don't know if she understands that this has ramifications for her. That this isn't just a sweet story for Christians, but I am rejoicing that I was able to share that much, and I am praying for the Lord to stir her heart and give more opportunities for the gospel in our future conversations. Thank you for encouraging us. <laughs> Thank you for that encouragement. I mean, the, what a blessing! Amen. Yeah, <laughs> I hope your heart is encouraged. Mine truly is. So praise, praise. the Lord. So we're in verse 21, and we'll pick it up. Just a comment about that. Verse 21, as Luke's writing this information, and right before he gets to actually saying what Paul said in his short sermon, whether it was actually this short or not, we don't know, but it's what Luke wrote down for us. But right before that, he gives kind of a parenthetical statement. He says, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So, you know, the Athenians were well known for their attitude of always looking for something new or different uh, things that they could talk about, things that they could dialogue about. And and some of the, the philosophers... If you recall the earlier verses that we looked at the last couple of weeks, some of the philosophers had accused Paul of being a babbler, a seed picker, right? That was passing on this religious, you know, these religious seeds. And, and Luke's parenthetical statement here makes it clear that they were actually the seed pickers. They were the idle babblers. They engaged in talking about this and that, anything new, you know, uh, there's a guy by the name of Demosthenes. He uh, was in Athens 400 years before Paul arrived there. And he had reproached the city and the Athenians in this way. He said, you are the best people at being deceived by something new that is said. <laughs> you're just, you're just like, you're like a vacuum taking in all, whatever is given, you take it in and you talk about it and so on. Uh, the, and the situation, as I, as I was considering that, is not unlike people in our own day. You know, this isn't ancient words for ancient times and ancient peoples. This is words for us. And it, it's very similar to people in our own day who are constantly desiring to talk about or find something new. Uh, the discovery of the knowledge doesn't often lead to meaningful life changes. You know, it, it doesn't. It. Unless, unless it's change for the bad. Unless it's change moving them to violate all the more God's character, God's moral will, God's word. They're all talk and no action, in a sense, unless that action is a violation of God's moral laws. You know, and, and let's talk about it, you know, well, let's cancel that. You know, the cancel culture, right? Or, Let's get a new thing on the internet. Uh, oh, that's, let's talk about that. And then, of course, you got the others. That say, that's just ridiculous. And this conversation gets going, lights a fire, 144,000 likes or 2 million dislikes. And and it's like our culture is, let's talk about it, but not make any meaningful changes as a result of any discussion. Sad. But that is the pagan culture that has moved away from God. So we come then to verse 22 through 31, uh, which is kind of Paul's sermon. And so let me read that, and we'll kind of see how far we can get in it today. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For, notice it's a quote, Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So this is the proclamation of the gospel in a, in a pagan setting, right? This is the proclamation of the gospel. Did you notice what you didn't hear, didn't see? You don't see, and the prophet Isaiah said, or we read this in this Old Testament passage, there's no quoting of scripture. Now, he would have been quoting scripture like crazy in the synagogue. He's not doing it here. But that doesn't mean he's not sharing the same biblical truth that was in the Old Testament scriptures that he quoted in the synagogue. He just doesn't put it as in the Old Testament scriptures in Genesis or the Psalms or wherever, because they would have had no connection with that whatsoever. But he speaks the same truth. So what we see him doing in this passage very clearly is contextualizing the message of the gospel while contending for the truth. Contextualizing the message while still always contending for the truth that comes out of the scripture. This is a, a real-life example of what Paul meant when he wrote to the Corinthians uh, in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 22. This is just part of that. He said to them, uh, I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. He he goes on to say "To to the Jew, I become a Jew. To the Gentile, I become a Gentile. All with the purpose of reaching some with the gospel. Now, some have mistakenly understood that to mean that Paul would, you know, change his behavior, change how he lived his life, uh, so that he would look like, smell like, and all of that, the, the people that he was trying to reach. That he would essentially, you know, with the Gentiles, he'd become pagan to reach the pagans. You know, but to the Jews, he would he would clean up his... His acts, so to speak, keep the law. and That's such a mistake. That is such a wrong understanding of what he was saying. What he's saying is, reach people at their level of understanding. That's what I do. To the Gentiles, I don't quote scripture at them, but I tell them the truth that comes from the scripture. To the Jews who highly value the scripture, see it as God's word, I quote the scripture to them. I I contextualize my message, but I still contend for the truth. But I do so in a language that will be understood by the people that I'm speaking to. So, that's what he's saying. It doesn't mean that he would compromise his behavior, but that he would contextualize his message while always contending for the truth. And that's precisely what we see him doing in these verses. So to contextualize the message then means that what we're attempting to do is really bridge the gap between holy God and sinful man, right? We're trying to bridge the gap. There's a gap between God and every man and every culture. It's bridging the gap between God, who he is, and what he has declared in his Word and where people are in relation to it. So think of it as there's two points, two positions of these points. And the first point is God and is revealed truth. And that point is fixed, it's absolute, it's unchanging, it's not moving all around. The second point represents people, whether it's an individual or a culture. And that's constantly moving. It's constantly moving. And what we're trying to think of and what we see Paul do here is he's trying to bridge that gap between point A and point B. And he does so differently based on who he is talking with. Not bending or changing or compromising the truth in any way, but contextualizing the truth based on who he is speaking to. What we recognize clearly is that there is a gap, right, between God and sinners. Paul put it this way in Romans 3. You probably know the verse, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the gap. That, that, that gap, you know, is seen in, in artistry where, you know, heavens, the heavenly cities on one side come Kind of out of the idea of John Bunyan and his book. Uh, there's the heavenly city on one side, and then this big chasm, and on the other side is like this fiery city. And there's no way to cross. Well, that is, except for the cross. The only way you can get across from the fiery city to the heavenly city is by crossing the bridge that God made between. Holy God and sinful man, bridging the gap. And that's what Paul is attempting to do. It's certainly necessary to express the truth. Yes? Yeah. About God? Yes. And about men? Yes. But we must understand that while God and his truth is unchanging, every person, every culture is at a different point of separation from him. And you can probably look back at your own life and say, that was true of me. I was that dot, and boy, was I moving all over the place. You know, I was here, and then I was here, and then I was here, but there was still this gap. I, I never really got any closer to God. I was just moving around the points of the compass without, you know, getting closer to God. God. So, you you can understand that. And this is why Paul would reason differently with Jews than he would with Gentiles. And he would have a different dialogue with people who believed in one God, monotheists, as opposed to those who believed in many gods, polytheists, or pantheists. You know, there there is God, but he's not a personal God, he's just kind of dispersed like the uh, Stoics believed. They were pantheists clearly, in Athens, they were very much for the most part polytheists, many, many, many gods, a god in every corner, a god, you know, for every imaginary thing that a man has said as a god, as well as gods named after human emotions and reason and courage and things like that. So what we see in in this is that Paul's saying you know, I, I want to talk to you. Even though you don't believe in a personal God, I want to tell you about the personal God that you can know. You believe in many gods, I want to tell you about the one true God. You know, so he's getting the truth out, but he's doing it in a wise and prudent way. And what we see in this short sermon in these verses is an example of Paul seeking to bridge that, that gap as he content, contextualizes this message And contends for the truth. And he begins with the point of contact. He begins with the point of contact in verses 22 and 23. Trying to bridge the gap. So again, we read, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, whether that is Mars Hill or just in the marketplace where the school of uh, of philosophies met and, you know, it's a council there, doesn't really matter what he says does matter. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as, as I pass along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Where therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He's trying to make a point of contact. And he does so by first observing, you know, or, or making a recognition to them of what he has observed. He didn't begin by saying, let me tell you what God said in... First Kings eight, or you know Psalms fifty one about repentance, or that kind of thing. It doesn't start there. These people wouldn't have anything in common with such things. But what he starts with is a courteous observation uh, of what he has seen in the city. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So, although he was provoked in his spirit, we saw that earlier. Uh, in verse 16, he restrained himself from vehemently speaking with them about their idolatry. He, he is going to address the weakness of their religious views, but he starts out by recognizing their religious tendencies. Did you get that? He will talk to them about their faulty theology, but he starts with the recognition of their religious or their theological tendencies. Now, the King, I'll just point this out. The King James Version, and the, I don't know if it's both the New King James and the Old King James, but it translates it almost, almost with a sarcastic or accusatory flavor, at least it could read that way, it, it, put this way. I perceive that in all things you, ye are too superstitious. And that, that uh, the Greek word that is used there, it's about this long. It's a compound word. I I had a hard time actually sounding it out in my own thinking as I was looking at it. But you don't need to know that word or write it down or anything. But that word can mean superstitious, or it can simply mean religious or devout, uh, as most modern translations have it. But the context, to me, seems to be pointing out that he's not intending to begin with a verbal attack. Uh, an accusatory or sarcastic statement, but rather that he's trying to make a point of contact, recognizing their religious instincts, you know, and that they had many idols and temples in Athens prove their capacity to, to see and worship a god. Right? That would be a yes. Yes, that would be correct that there are many idols demonstrated their capacity. There must be something above or beyond us, whatever, whoever that may be. They have that capacity. But at the same time, it showed how corrupted their view of God had become. So from a general recognition, point of contact of the religious capacity, Paul moves to a specific example, doesn't he? For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, we saw earlier, you know, as he was walking around the saying, he saw idols everywhere. So as I was walking around, I saw all these idols uh, to whom you give worship, these false gods. He didn't say that, but that's how we understand that. I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, I've mentioned a guy by the name of Pausanias. He was a Greek writer, historian geographer. He wrote about Greek cities. They particularly wrote a lot about Athens. So he and other Greek authors wrote about seeing altars with this very inscription to the unknown God. So it's not something that's made up by Paul. He's not lying about it. He had seen that. And, uh, you know, Paul seeks to open a door. He seeks to open a door to their minds uh, through one of their own altars. And, and the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers that were mentioned earlier and still are part of what he's saying in in this sermon had already stated their desire, uh, some of them. Uh, we wish to know more. This is strange to our ears. These are not deities that we've heard of before. Jesus and Anastasis. So, you know, they had already stated that they're open Luke has already indicated this city was full of people who said, hey, let's talk. And so that's what he's doing. He's opening a, a door to their minds and uh, and yet Paul understood that his audience prided themselves on their superior wisdom and knowledge. I mean, that's what they thought of themselves. It's kind of like Americans have thought for a long, long time. Right? is like is that right and that kind of what we've been told over and over again and particularly in the, in the last years america first we're tops we're tops economically we're tops medically we're tops scientifically we're wait a minute that the facts don't really support that but hey america first we're tops and, and so he you know he knows that's how they thought of themselves um, but it is from his understanding of the culture and their own statements that he raises an inconsistency. Uh, the inconsistency of their desire for knowledge with the worship of what? The unknown God. <laughs> the unknown God. So the Greek word for gnosis, or one of the Greek words for uh, knowledge, is gnosis. G-N-O-S-S-I-S, G-N-O-S-I-S. Gnosis. G is silent, and uh, the word for unknown, agnosis, just put a letter A at the beginning of the word, and that's the word for unknown or unknowing uh, or a word for ignorance. But it basically means without knowledge. So they have an altar for the unknown, the unknowing. The uh, we, we can't know who this God is, but we better get an altar up to recognize him. So the Athenians were supposed to be the most knowledgeable of people, uh, but on the most important issue of life, (laughs) they came up short. They didn't know God. They didn't even know their false God. So The most knowledgeable, the wisest people. Everyone else is a barbarian compared to them, um uh, that they come up short they come up short so it's it's masterful i think when paul says what therefore you worship as the unknown this i proclaim to you Now, he was not saying that these people were unconsciously worshiping the one true God. Rather, he's saying that the one true God whom he was proclaiming was ultimately responsible for the spiritual realities which they attributed to an unknown God. Get that? He's saying, "Uh, you misunderstand. I know the God who's behind all spiritual realities. And it's unlikely that this not-so-subtle irony of Paul's statement here you are, the most knowledgeable of, knowledgeable of people, worshiping an unknown god. You know, it, it's unlikely that that didn't wasn't lost on them. They they understood what he was doing. The irony of it. There may even have been a gasp. But, you know, when he said, like, "What? I can't believe you just said that about us." You know, I'm sure they weren't giving a hearty amen to what you saying. Now, I have a hard time getting a hearty amen out of you, even though I know you know the true God and you believe in his word. That's just a hint. It would be nice to hear more amens. Amen. There you go. And by the way, it is biblical if you read in 1 Corinthians 14, when, you know... Uh, exposition is being done, it ought to be clear so that people can give an an amen, which means an agreeing statement. I agree with that. Praise the Lord. Okay, that's just a, a, you know, creature's desire. So what should we notice? Well, I think it's that attempting to bridge the gap between the people, where people are, and and the truth that of God does not mean that we refrain from showing the difference between the truth and the lies that people are are uh, believing in. We need to do that. We need to do that. How else are we going to bridge the gap? So contextualizing our message doesn't mean that we we become pluralist or polytheist or pantheist or we affirm that everyone's beliefs are all of equal value and and they're all true. That's your truth, and this is my truth, and you know we we'll all get to the same truth. Deposit it, you know, in the end. No, we don't. We don't have to agree with that in any way. We should not. We should point out that that can't be so. It means that we seek to reach people with the truth, explaining what is true and what is false, with an understanding of where they're coming from. That's what Paul is doing. Here's what I see. I see a religious capacities and tendencies. And even to the point where you have an idol to an unknown God, I'm here to tell you I know the God who is the real spiritual reality. You're wrong. So having established a bridge, um, the apostle then moves from their ignorance of the the truth about the one true God and and their condition before him. Uh, And although he doesn't quote any Old Testament scriptures uh, as he would in the synagogue, as 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 we continue, recognize that the truth he shares is the same biblical content. What he's saying comes right out of the scriptures, though he's not quoting it from this reference or even quoting it verbatim. You know, and and uh, I I believe strongly in scripture memory. I think you know that about me. Uh, people often, if I encourage them or exhort them to that end, and Say, well, I struggle with it so much. I, you know, I, I get words wrong. <laughs> the point is not to get every word right. Now, we don't want to miss or change any of the words of God. But just the the various translations will tell you that there can be a word change. And you're not losing the verse or the truth. We need to put it into our heart mind, and mind. And God will bring it up in various contexts as we... Follow the opportunities that he gives us. So Paul's contextualizing it you know, for his audience, this truth that he shares. You could put it in a couple different ways. One way is you could say what, he, what he's saying is, your God is too small. Your God is too small. There's a title of a book, by someone with with that. I think it's a good way to put it. Your God is too small. Or you could put it this way. The true God you can know. There is a, a God who you can actually know. The true God you can actually know and not have an unknown God. And so what he shares with them about the truth that you can know about God is significant. And he starts out with the truth that God is the creator and the sustainer. God is the creator and the sustainer. Verses 24 and 25. He puts it. The God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. It's like, what verse is that quoting? It's not quoting any verse. And it's quoting lots of verses in a sense. Right? So by referring to the God, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, Paul's directly contrasting the worship of the Athenians of an unknown God. Now, the ESV and some of the modern translations have here uh, an unknown God, and some of them, well, the ESV has the unknown God. And some others as well. And then other translations, probably most of them have an unknown God. And that's a better translation. The direct article is not there. So, you know, uh, I I saw an altar uh, with this inscription, to an unknown God, which could be one and only one, or it could be one of many, not the unknown God. And that's significant. He's saying there is the God, direct article included, the God who made the heavens and the earth. So some people worship an unknowable and impersonal God, but Paul declares that there is one God who is the one true God, noble and personal. And, And from this point, Paul begins to, Identify uh, some specific and absolute truths about the God who is knowable. And as I said, the first of those things is that He's the creator. He's the creator. So the fundamental truth, that God is the creator of the world and everything in it, as he writes, as he said there, and Luke recorded, may not sound at all strange to our ears. In fact, it would be strange if we didn't think that, right? But to them, that would sound strange. It would would be shaking to them. To us, it's not. It's it's something that we rest in. We're thankful for. But it's Paul's way of challenging their faulty theology about God. Uh, The Stoics were mentioned. They were pantheists. They they believed in an impersonal God dispersed. Throughout the universe, he's in everything, is everywhere, but he's not personal. And when you die, you just kind of get absorbed into the God force, if you want to bring Star Wars into that idea. That's what they believed, the Epicureans were practical agnostics. If there is a God, he certainly doesn't care about us, and he probably just kind of started it all, wound it up, and let it go where it goes, it goes. Uh, neither group believed in a personal and unique God who created everything. So Paul is contextualizing you know, his message, but he's contending for this fundamental truth. There is one true God, and he is the creator. Now, we, we read that and we think, why didn't he say, Genesis 1.1 says, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, as well as multiple other times that is said in the Old Testament, why does he have to? They wouldn't have understood those references at all. But he's saying the exact same truth. God, there is one God, and He is the Creator of everything. And that you know that implies more. It stands to reason, uh, and that's what he's doing, right? He's reasoning with them, dialoguing with these people, it stands to reason that the same God who made the heavens and the earth, everything in it, would also be the Lord of all that he has made. And that's what he says. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And and then he says, and, and by the way, he wouldn't live in temples made by men. This is this is Old Testament truth. He didn't quote it, but I'll quote some to you. Um, First Kings eight twenty seven, but God will God indeed dwell on the earth? The old heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house which I built? That's Solomon, you know, at when they're dedicating the temple that was finished. Isn't that what Paul's saying exactly? Just different words, not quoting, but that's exactly what he's saying. If God created everything, He can't be contained in a little box. He doesn't need a condo to live in when he's visiting the earth. It's the same point. The, The creator by right rules over all that he made and all he owns. Genesis 14, 19 describes God as the possessor of heaven and earth and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Elsewhere we see Uh, quoted by the prophets, doesn't the potter have a right to do with the clay whatever he wants to do with it? Because he's the potter. Uh, I would say more than that. He's the guy who made the clay. He's the one, not the guy. God's not a guy. Uh, He's the one who made the clay and he can do with his creation whatever he wants to. He's Lord over it. And, you know, what we see in his creation, doesn't it declare, we talked about this in Romans 1 not very long ago, but doesn't it declare his great imagination, his creative genius, his beauty that is part of his being, his great power, right? It, it, it's all declared in what he's made and how he is managing it. He's the creator and the sustainer. So in the same way, God is the source of all life. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. And The word translated here is served, like, uh, God, can I serve you? Can I do anything for you? That word that's used here, like, God doesn't need your service. He's not served by human hands. It's the word therapeuo, the Greek word. Y- you understand the English word that comes from that, therapeutic, Right? There's been talks about, even with the COVID stuff, therapeutics that are advancing to help with the disease. Uh, You know, you you go to therapy after you, oftentimes after you have surgery, you gotta go through therapy, see a physical therapist. That's the idea of this word. God is not being cared for by the creatures that he's made. He doesn't need our compassion, our assistance. He, he doesn't need our help. And Paul's pointing out that it's really just absurd, absurd to imagine that the Creator would need to be served or taken care of in any way, whether it's in a place to live or a person to talk to or a task to fulfill. God doesn't need us. He wants us. He desires us. He loves us. But he in no way needs us. You know, and some preachers, are, I heard it just a couple weeks ago. I was listening to a sermon. And normally, I'm very encouraging, right out of the scripture. And the preacher said, You know, God just longs for you. He, he, I, I'm not sure they said the word need, but that's clearly what was being kind of implied. I'm like, Whoa, wait a minute. God doesn't need us. He created us for his glory. He created us to have intimate relationships with him. He created us to be with him forever. Why? Because he needs us? No. For all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were perfectly satisfied in their perfect communion. But he, he wanted... The creation and his creatures to bring him glory, and particularly us human creatures to reflect his glory because we're created in his image. Fallen as we are and distorted as our image might be, like looking in a cracked mirror, that is why God created us, not because he needs us. God is eternal. And God exists outside of what he's made to exist within time and space. The the Lord, we're told that God is spirit, right? Immaterial, and therefore does not need anything physical or material for habitation to dwell in. You know, this is, churches are often referred to as God's house, right? It's not where God lives. God lives in us. This is a place that he's given us to gather as his habitation. He habits us. We are his building, a temple to the Lord. This is just a place where we can do it together and be warm, you know, and argue with one another and hug each other and cry with each other and all of that. God doesn't need us that way. And in, in the same way, you know, uh, we read, this is really kind of coming right out of the Old Testament as well. I was thinking of a couple of passages. One of them is Jeremiah 9, uh, 10, verses 1 through 16. I read that a, a few weeks ago when we were in Romans 1. But there's another one in Isaiah 44, 9 through 20. It's a little lengthy. So if you have your Bible, turn there. And I'm going to read through that. And uh, we'll see the the God thinks of the foolishness, the absurdity of idolatry and the belief that God can be contained in an image or in a building or something like that. So Isaiah 44, 9 through 20. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see uh, see nor know that they may be put, into, uh, put to shame. Who fashions a god or cast an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame. And, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified and they shall be put to shame. In other words, idolatry is a shameful thing because it's trying to put into an image the one who cannot be put into an image. Shameful. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He he fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He he drinks no water and, and he's faint. The carpenter stretches the line. He marks it out with the pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house cuts down cedars or chews as a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He, he plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol out of this tree that he's cut down. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. And he falls down to it and he worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my god. They cannot know. Nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand, much like what Jesus said about the Pharisees in the New Testament. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten, and I shall make the rest of it into an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? You see, that's what Paul's saying to the Athenians. God is not like us. He doesn't need us to serve him. He doesn't need for us to build him a house. He doesn't need for us to build a cart to transport him from this point to that point. He doesn't need to be hammered down by nails so that, you know, he won't totter. That's idolatry. That is absurdity. I'll make half the tree beneficial for me for a fire and for a meal, and the other half I'll make into a god by my hands, and then I'll worship that god and ask it to deliver me. How insane is that? absurd, unthinkable, inconceivable. Okay, some of you got that. Princess Bride is alive. So God is independent of his creation. Praise him. He is independent. He is free of his creation. Unlike the creatures that he He's made. God does not need people, though He Himself chooses to love and interact with us. Aren't you glad that He does? Aren't you glad that you know He's our Father? Jesus is not only our Savior and Lord, but He's our brother and friend. Aren't you glad that the Holy Spirit whispers to us, "I love you, I'm here for you, let me guide you"? Aren't you glad that that you know God says, "Let me give you a book"? To help you along the difficult path of life. Aren't you glad for the God that we have? Amen. Amen. God doesn't need us. He did not need us to serve him. The truth is, our God serves us. You read about it right in Psalm 23. Our, Our God will make a table. Set a table for us. Before our enemies. He's the one that makes the meal. He's the one that sets it on the table. He's the one that's going around the table serving it. And by the way, that's exactly what you saw Jesus do at the last Passover, right? Serving his disciples. But Paul says, hey, what God is really like, he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. That is a quote. That is a quote from a Greek poet. "This is God, or that, that I'm sorry, that's a little bit later. In him, we have life and have our being. This is essentially saying the same thing. He himself gives every person life and breath and everything. did you Did you know that you woke up this morning and you recognized that you were still breathing, and that was God? I recognized that I woke up during the night. With the dream of being in pain. Because it was. And that was God too. Because he watches over us while we sleep. Not just while we're awake. (laughs) Our God is so good. So great. With this last phrase. He himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything Paul is identifying that the one true God is not only the creator of all, but he is the sustainer of all. And it's not unlike what Paul would write to the Colossian church in his epistle, chapter 1, to the Colossians 16 and 17. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. By the word of his power, he sustains everything. So Paul is contextually communicating the truth stated explicitly elsewhere in Scripture, but he doesn't quote it from the Old Testament to them the same truth. That God is the creator and the sustainer of all things. The one true God is the architect and the builder and the owner of all things. This is the God that you can know and have a relationship. And that's just point one of what he's saying there. But that's where we're going to stop today. So, I, I won't be able to share the rest of this with you maybe for a few weeks. I mean, I won't be preaching next week and someone else is preaching on the 28th and I think for Easter we'll probably do a resurrection message. So we'll probably get back to this April 11th or something like that. Keep it in mind. Keep it in your heart. Keep seeking opportunities to represent this one true God. Let God use you to be the instrument, like He did with Paul there in Athens and other places, to help people come out of the darkness. Out of the darkness that Satan has blinded their eyes so that they can't see the light of the gospel. You, we, should be that light. God wants to use us that way, bring people into the light of the truth, of the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we are thankful that we have your word. What an encouragement it is as we not only can see some lessons for ourselves about how we should share the truth about you with others, but more importantly, it reveals you to us. And we are humbled by who you are and that you would still care for us the way that you do, that you would... Give your son that we could come to know you. Lord, and I, I say that thinking there, there could be someone in our meeting today that doesn't really know you. Maybe they have knowledge. They talk a lot about God, perhaps. But they don't really know you. Because they not as Paul will later say it, they haven't repented and put their faith in Lord Jesus Christ. I, I pray that you would, do that for them today. Draw them unto your son. All that you draw will come and, and all that come will no wise be cast out. So I pray that if there's someone like that today that they would turn to the hope of Christ today and for the rest of us help us to walk in this steadfast hope. We ask that you'll do this so that we might bring you Glory. And enjoy you forever. We ask this in Christ's great name. Amen.